Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. everyone, it's Mickey here and you are listening to another episode of Wikipedia. Today on the podcast I am stoked to bring to you the conversation that I had with Rob Wolf, the OG of this whole Paleolithic and ancestral nutrition space. Rob Wolf is a former research biochemist and two times New York Times and Wall Street Journal best-selling author of The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat. And I've got to say, The Paleo Solution was my first introduction to writing in and around the paleo diet, and it really helped inform some of the key changes, I suppose, that I made to how I advocate nutrition uh, back in the day. He also co-authored Sacred Cow, a book he wrote with Diana Rogers, which explains why well-raised meat is good for us and good for the planet. Now, we talk a little bit about this today in the podcast, but much more so we talk about ancestral nutrition, uh, ancestral health, and Rob's journey in that space. Rob has transformed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people around the world via his top-ranked iTunes podcast, which is the Healthy Rebellion Radio, and I have links to that and his books in the show notes. And he is known for his direct approach and ability to distill and synthesize information to make the complicated stuff easier to understand. And I'm sure that you will get a taste of that in our conversation. So if you are unfamiliar with Rob, you are in for a real treat. And if you know of Rob and already consume his information, this will just add to that body of knowledge that you already have and that you know that Rob can provide. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. And just before we kick on into it, I'd like to remind you that the best way to support us is to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform if you don't already and share it with your mates and another way if you felt like going that extra mile is to sign up to one of the meal plans or the recipe portal access that I have over on mickeywillardin.com my website where you get access to over 800 recipes which are frequently updated a weekly email from me you get access to the members only Facebook page where we do written forums and you get the access to my brain for me to answer any of your nutrition related questions and also head over to my website to put your name in a little pop-up box to get a free download to my protein ebook where I can help you make better decisions around real food nutrition which does not cost the earth. Alrighty team I hope you enjoy this conversation that I have with Rob Wolf about ancestral nutrition, ancestral health and building community. Sweet Rob. Um, so should I just kick off? Is that all right? Sure that's perfect yeah. Awesome cool. Um, Rob, awesome to have you on the show, and I've been wanting to do this for, well, basically forever, but then I overanalyzed it and it just took me too long. Um, so thank you for making the time. I, it's awesome, particularly because, well, one, you're Rob Wolf, and you're like the OG, aren't you? 
I, I am getting I, pretty old. I, I, I think my <laughs> driver's license has hieroglyphics on it or, you know, something to that effect. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I know. Actually, as I um, was thinking about that and thinking about, you know, what I'd love to chat to you about, I just wondered whether paleo and ancestral health, like how much it even existed before you were actually part of it? Because it feels like it has been that long because you're obviously the introduction for so many people. When I stumbled onto this idea in 1998 and I found Lauren Cordain's very early work, I think he only had the one main paper published at that time, Cereal Grains, Humanities, Double-Edged Sword, or maybe I even found him before that. But I, I want to say that there were maybe a couple of hundred people around the world that had this idea of like a paleo diet and ancestral health, mm. but they were, they were mainly researchers in and around like medical anthropology and whatnot. There were a few, a very few physicians that were tackling things from kind of a, a evolutionary biology, ancestral health perspective. Uh, ironically, uh, a, a physician out of Australia was one of the main inspirations for Lauren Cordain's early work. This, and, and I'm forgetting the, the gentleman's name, but in the 1960s, he postulated the existence of zonulin, which ended up being this really critical, mm. you know, protein in, in the gut. And he foretold there will be, he didn't call it zonulin, but he described it. it's kind of like uh, when, when they, you know, physicists say there will be this particle and it will have this mass and this, you know, momentum and everything. But he described all these characteristics of zonulin and that it would be critical in the autoimmune process and that it would emanate from the gut. And then unfortunately, I believe this physician ended up dying and his, it, you know, in an mm. automobile accident or something like that. So his work was largely lost to the world. You know, this was very much before the internet and whatnot. And so he had started to develop some clinics uh, uh, exploring the autoimmune gut, gut connection and whatnot. And this was a major feature of Lauren Cordain's work, uh, you know, in, in kind of postulating forward that there was this, this gut autoimmunity axis that existed. And it was this uh, physician's work from the 1960s who had foretold the existence of zonulin and leaky gut and all all this type of stuff. But I mean, in the, the late 90s, early 2000s, there wasn't there wasn't a paleo diet book category, you know, that that didn't exist. Mm. Uh, there, there was low carb, for sure, you know, kind of Atkins and whatnot. And that would probably be the closest iteration for something mm. akin to the ancestral health, you know, approach. Yeah. Rob, what even, like, when you think back, because, I mean, I've heard your origin sort of story several times about your significant um, health issues. What was it actually got you to, like, that led you to look at diet? Because, and I know, obviously, you know, people did that, but what, yeah, what was that for you? So I had ulcerative colitis and a very severe mm. case of ulcerative colitis. I'm about 170 pounds, some five foot nine, 170 pounds, uh, at the low ebb of the ulcerative colitis, I was about 125, 130 pounds. So if you imagine, you know, 40, 50 pounds less of me, like I, I was in pretty dire straits and it, it was right around this time that my mother who had suffered for as long as I could remember, like I, my mom was sick as early as I could remember, uh, looking back now, kind of metabolic issues and also some autoimmune and gut issues. But she was diagnosed with celiac, 
rheumatoid arthritis, Sjogren's, uh, about eight different interrelated autoimmune conditions. And her rheumatologist said that he suspected that she was reactive to grains, legumes, and dairy. And I, mm. at, at the time, I was eating kind of a, a high-carb, low-fat, vegan diet, which I, I think for some people might work. For me, it was definitely a disaster, particularly living in, in Seattle and trying to be a grad student and, you know, all this other, you know, kind of stressful type stuff layered on top of it. But it was particularly bad for me. But I sat there thinking, gosh, if one does not or cannot eat grains, legumes, and dairy, like what on earth would you eat, you know? And it was kind mm -hmm. of this free association that I was thinking, okay, well, grains, legumes, and dairy, that's kind of agriculture, you know? And what did we do before agriculture? That was the Paleolithic and hunter-gatherers. And so I, I, I had heard this term Paleolithic diet, and I went into the house and turned on my computer and waited for it to, you know, the hamsters to come alive inside <laughs> of it. And there was this uh, shiny new search engine called uh, Google, and into Google, I put the term Paleolithic diet. And that's where I found early work from Lauren Cordain and also a, a really brilliant economist, Arthur Devaney, Art Devaney. And that was kind of the mm. first you know, go through on this, but it was, um, it was kind of finding the clinical, you know, ramifications of someone, my mom in particular, who was reactive to virtually all the regular foods that, that we are told to eat. And then thinking about like, well, what, mm. what are the implications there? And then clearly I, I was, it, it was fairly obvious that I, I had much similar issues to my mother, just not as, as advanced. And so, I've always been fascinated by evolutionary biology. Like as a small kid, I, I really, you know, uh, was interested in it. And so I, I think I just had a predilection towards looking at the world in that way. And then when I mm. shifted my eating in this direction, it was such a profound, you know, I mean, it's N equals one, but uh, it, it, it saved my life. And then I started working with people and discovering that a lot of folks had gut and autoimmune issues, like just getting someone to lose weight. It, there's a lot of different routes to that, that endpoint. But if somebody has both metabolic disease and complex gut and autoimmune issues, I, I think that the number of tools available are very limited. Like you, 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 the, mm. the options there are much more limited, you know, when the online diet wars, people will just say, well, you need, match protein, and then it doesn't really matter what else you eat. And I think that that's probably true for most people under just the circumstance that our, our standard is just weight loss. But when we add in dealing with complex health issues, particularly gut issues, I, I think that this ancestral health kind of perspective ends up being really important to use as, as kind of a guidepost along the way. Mm. And did you follow like the full autoimmune protocol as it might stand today? Like what's, what are your views on that? Because a lot of people look at it like that is way too extreme, but maybe extreme is what some people need. Yeah, it, it's funny. So when it, it, and it, it is kind of cool looking back now, like I've been eating this way for 23 years. My, my first book, uh, The Paleo Solution has been out 12 years now, I think. It will be 12 years this, this next year. So it, it is kind of crazy, but there was a time when there wasn't an autoimmune paleo protocol, you know, and, and mm. the first writing about an autoimmune paleo protocol was, was only a couple of paragraphs in 
the paleo solution because my my editor at the time was like this is way too complex we we can't add this additional material in there so i just kind of alluded to what the the thoughts were with it you know that the additional um you know layer of perhaps peeling fruits and vegetables avoiding the seeds of fruits and vegetables you know some of these things like nightshades uh, you know tomatoes eggplants those sorts of things paprika different spices might be also problematic and um i would it's interesting i would say that the autoimmune paleo approach has helped a lot of people like that kind of ended up uh turning into the walls protocol is kind of a, an offshoot, you mm. know, very, very similar to that. If you look at specific carbohydrate diet and a number of other approaches that have now been pretty well clinically vetted, like we have some good research on the autoimmune paleo approach, the walls protocol, a uh, specific carbohydrate diet, and they all are remarkably similar in my mind. You know, there's, there's just a, an enormous amount of similarity there. Um, I think they helped a lot of people, but I have to say um, this crazy carnivore thing kind of blew mm. blew me away, you know, five, six years ago because I I fought this this caricature around this whole, you know, ancestral health story. It's like, oh, that's the guy that just recommends an all-meat diet. And I would, you know, just indignantly like I eat lots of vegetables, you know, and and uh, you know, let yeah. me show you how many vegetables I eat. And then lo and behold, like I, I found this group of people online that they had done everything. These were folks that were really sick. And again, complex gut and autoimmune issues, uh, usually rheumatoid arthritis and some sort of ulcerative colitis, you know, uh, uh, combination. And these folks had done everything. You know, usually they found some iteration of kind of paleo and then keto and, and you know, just uh, – out of desperation, I don't think anybody other than maybe 19-year-old knuckle-headed boys who, who think that they're going to get uber-jacked, you know, eating only steak, decide to do a carnivore diet as like the first whistle stop mm. in, in nutritional modification. You know, it, it just seems crazy that that's the first place that people go. But there, I found a bunch of people who had done everything. They did the autoimmune paleo approach. And it's like each thing kind of helped, like it was certainly better than eating a standard American diet, but these folks were still sick. And then I found folks mm. that had, had found some iteration of this carnivore approach and they were healed, you know, effectively. Um, mm. it, it, people get prickly about that term because it's like, well, can they still eat bread? No, that will still cause problems. So, you, you know, what they found is a way of mitigating their, their situation. And um, as the founder of the autoimmune paleo diet concept i'm more impressed with the clinical efficacy of some flavor of carnivore than i am with the because it, it almost reminds me of like the the early history around like judaism and christianity and like this one has a lot of rules. This one has a lot less, fewer rules and seems easier to do. And it, it kind of strikes me in that way because that AIP protocol is just mind-numbing in its complexity. Mm. Whereas, like, if you just flip it around and you go the opposite way, it's like, just start with meat and seafood and, like, bone broth. And, yeah. and then we'll work from there. It seems so much easier uh, it, it psychologically, it seems easier. Physiologically, it definitely seems to work better. And then we can kind of iterate from there. Whereas if we start from the perspective of we're going to 
cut one more thing out and cut one more thing out and cut one more thing out. Like that feels almost more de- depriving and difficult to do than like we're cutting everything out and, you know, like Uber elimination diet. And then we'll backfill back into, you know, what, what degree of latitude the person has. Mm, there's so many mental gymnastics that seem to go into the AIP and what can, what kind of bread can I make that's AIP and, and how am I yeah. going to make this dessert and what am I going to have for lunch rather than it's just meat. So all of that decision burden is sort of gone and it's almost, I can imagine for some people it would almost be like a relief, like, okay, well, I'm just going to try this and sort of see how it pans out. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. I, I will say that I had eaten kind of a, some iteration of a keto approach for the better part of 20 years and had never really had food cravings. But the first couple of times I tried doing um, carnivore, um, I kind of freaked out. I was like, I want ice cream. Mm. I want this. I want that, you know? And uh, <laughs> I, so it, it, for me, um, I had reached a point where I didn't feel particularly constrained. I felt like I had lots of latitude in, in what I was eating, but, um, that initial shift, you know, to carnivore, which you wouldn't think it would be that big of a a shift for someone like me, but it, it really psychologically was, was challenging for me. Um, but lo and behold, I, I found that eating a little closer to that, like I'm really careful with the amount and types of vegetables that I consume. Like a green salad is just Mm. really not, generally my friend like if i lived in costa rica and i just baked on a rock all day and had like zero you know stress and demands on me other than like spearfishing or something i might do okay with that but i i do okay with some fruit i do okay with a, a few different types of very well cooked vegetables a little bit of root vegetables and whatnot but um i i just found that i i, I did better closer to a carnivore approach than than you know this very trying to do a very vegetable um intensive you know iteration of like paleo or or keto mm, people are so uncomfortable with the idea of not eating vegetables and not giving your five plus a day yeah i think out of almost everything that you can recommend people like absolutely i get up in arms about it yeah it, it it's funny and it was weird for me too and and again i i felt like that was the um the only saving grace that I had as this kind of like paleo diet, keto diet advocate was like, no, no, no. I, I recommend that people eat lots and lots of, of vegetables and whatnot. And then, you know, I, over, over time, like we're, we're both members of the healthy rebellion and like, we were kind of doing a bit of tallying in there. And I think like 25% of the folks in there eat some iteration of a, a carnivore carnivore ish approach and it's to manage complex health issues. And that that's kind of mm. kind of remarkable. It's also not surprising. Like that's kind of my my jam, you know, people with really you know, yeah. complex poop issues just seem that that's kind of where uh it, you know the crowd I, I I draw in. So that that's interesting. But yeah, it was it was weird for me and I felt very uncomfortable recommending it, you know, or or just acknowledging that like, hey, there might be something to this. But I just again and again saw folks go from comparatively compromised health to comparatively better health by making the shift. And, I, you know, it's just that that empirical part of it is kind of hard to beat. Yeah. And I think I feel like I, I agree with you because I've worked with a number of clients now and we've we've worked on a um, like the carnivore approach and they've seen some massive health benefits 
from it. And I think, as with anything, it's the, the disservice is sort of done when you've got the um, the zealots out in, in social media space, you know, which right. might paint it. Um, you know, you've always got people at the extremes and saying, like, this is the way that everyone should eat. And, and I feel like that's where it does a disservice for the entire sort of people who might actually benefit from it. Absolutely. And this is so much the challenge of social media. Like, what what does it what what does the algorithm reward controversy and conflict mm. and so people learn you know through this like pavlovian process to be kind of assholes about things you know and then it's just like <laughs> yeah. you're rewarded for that you know you you uh yeah. you get the dopamine hit of more clicks more interaction more conflict um you know and so it it's uh if our modern Western liberal democracies and, and civilization as we know it crater and end, and then some civilization rises after that and they're able to like go through and figure out what happened, they're like, oh, this social media thing, don't do that again. Like that was a, <laughs> that was a terrible idea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and on that, Rob, was that sort of, because you mentioned the Healthy Rebellion and, and I've been a member for, I think as soon as I saw the email come through, I'm like, help be a part of that part of it is because I'm such a my personality is that I like to be involved and I like to be part of something and I think you you say you're known for AOP and of course you are in paleo but I feel like you're also known for that building community mm -hmm. and creating a safe space for people who might not feel like they have that um in other areas was that one of the sort of um I suppose one of the reasons for you guys deciding to sort of take on this mission of the healthy rebellion. Yes, and it was also a, 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 I don't know if you remember the the backstory, but in 2017, my website, along with a good number of other websites within the the ancestral health space, got kind of hoovered up in this uh, Google Owl update, and it was one of the First, really, it, it, Google had done this multiple times. Like for a long time, Google has been moving towards owning and curating health information. Like they want you to look at this thing and not necessarily the other thing. For a long time, they rewarded people like myself who would generate a lot of unique content and update it frequently and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And you, you end up with a high ranking, you know, website and lots of people find your stuff. But uh, over the course of time, Google has put these kind of roadblocks into finding that that uh, kind of non-mainstream narrative, uh, you know, information offerings. And so one one day in 2017, we we kind of got up and we looked at our our website analytics, and the web traffic had dropped by 97 percent. Like we just disappeared from mm -hmm. the internet. It was still there, but like I had I had a, there's a a vegan documentary film, uh, Cowspiracy, and I forget if, if I did both mm. Cowspiracy and What the Health, but I, I did a review of these films, and it's basically like minute by minute thing. Okay, the the folks that this part, Neil Bernard Shaw in the film makes this claim. Um, here's the thing that he cites for it. Here's my take on it. You know what I mean? It, 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 an enormous amount of work, probably 90 plus hours of work to, to go through this thing. But when, when one would search for cowspiracy or what the health you would find typically the film. And then within that first page of search, you would find my review because it, it was, I, I mm. tried to be as 
impartial, you know, I, I wasn't a huge jerk. I was like, okay, I think that they're right here and I think that they're wrong there. And I cited all my stuff and it was a very popular piece because people wanted to read reviews of the film and mine put 90 hours into it, into reviewing it, you know, into, into an analysis of reviewing it. That is still on the internet, but you need to put in Rob Wolf Cowspiracy, you know, and then you might find it. But even mm. then, it will be on like page 30 of a search return instead mm. of like number three, page one of a search return. So we we realized at that point that, you know, for whatever reason, and, and honestly, it's been interesting with like COVID and all the rest of this stuff, it's become more obvious why, you know, Google and some of these entities are, are really trying to control and curate the the information that that is available to all of us. But I realized that I, I could spend a decade or two of work building this, that, you know, platform that then with the flick of a switch becomes effectively unfindable. So I wasn't deplatformed mm. in that the, the website was gone, but if nobody can find your work, it's effectively the same thing. And so I kind of had a choice between, you know, like going sacred cow, you, you know, and, and just being a farmer and, and throwing in the towel but I really felt like I still had something to offer in this health and wellness space. And that was the impetus for finding somewhere that seemed like the, the values of not just freedom of speech of the individual being able to say something. But the, the flip side of this is that the, the way that these information monopolies curate information they're assuming that you are so addle-brained and so weak-minded that it's dangerous for you to read what I have to say, which I, I find that incredibly problematic. It's not it, – it goes above and beyond even the ability of the individual to say something. It's the ability of the society at large to experience what the individual has to say and then make a decision about whether mm -hmm. or not they buy into that or not. Or maybe it, it, if they completely disagree with it, then, you know, formulate their their response to it. And, you know, uh, that seems like a really healthy, dynamic uh, type, of, type of community to build. And we seem to be heading in a, a very different direction from that. So that was really the the genesis and the impetus for for doing something like the healthy rebellion because we just recognized that we were in this kind of information cul-de-sac that we could continue um generating material and and whatnot and it might never really be found again you know because we we could mm. play this song and dance of like updating all of our algorithmic you know status with our website and and uh, which is kind of what we were told to do, but we we did that, and it didn't really change our our position there. You know, we never regained the the reach that we had previously. And so, Rob, has it um, turned out the way that you envisioned it would? Like, how has it? Because it's been two years now. So, how is it? How's it going? Yeah, it, it's going really well. And honestly, I wasn't sure if anybody would show up. Like, it was just kind of a hope and mm. a prayer that anybody would show up. It. I think it's it's gone. Uh, far better than what my expectations were. Uh, it's reached a point where I, I try to be active in there, but I also try not to be there so much that it's just kind of like a wall of Rob. Like I really do think that the the hive mind is much smarter than any one individual. I, I think that, you know, like we have some people like uh, Jack Rustin in there who is just so smart and not just smart with like the technical details of nutrition but like his emotional intelligence is just 
incredible. And you you have a few stewards or shepherds like that that are able to uh, uh, keep the inmates from from you know trying to shiv each other in the liver and and stuff like that. And so uh, by and large, it is has been a really um, welcoming, warm, engaged uh, area. Uh, we've been able to navigate discussions around some really complex sociopolitical stuff, you know, COVID being, being, you know, kind of, kind of front and center and a a host of other things, you know, climate change issues, the role of animal husbandry in the, the process of climate change. And, and the interesting thing is that because I I think part of the reason why it works, there's a couple of reasons. There's a paywall. So some people paid some money to be Mm. there. So as Big of assholes as there are in the world, like you really, you really gotta gotta want to do something to go, you know, spend some chunk of money to show up and just just be a troll somewhere. So I think that that's a, a big factor. So there's there's just more skin in the game and and buy in, you know, right from the beginning. But then the fact that the platform is just people interacting with each other. There isn't an algorithm that's figuring out well. This person and this person probably wouldn't get along at all. So I'm going to make sure that they both see each other's posts so that they hate each other maximally, you know, and, and, uh, uh, it's, it's grown to a, I I think a sustainable spot. Like we weren't sure if, you know, a thousand or 10,000 people would be good. And, you know, it seems like somewhere around that 1500 People, 1,200, 1,500 people is, is good. Uh, it, it, uh, mm. it normalizes the ups and downs of just people checking in and checking out of a community like that. But I feel like if it got much larger, that it would, it would lose the intimacy and, and, you know, you might have a tendency for people to be more, more crass and, and abusive and, and whatnot. And so if there was ever a a need to expand it, I would just kind of create a, another entity, you know, another healthy rebellion and maybe Jack ran it or, you know, something like that. Like he would be kind of the steward of that. And that was kind of my pretty quickly. I had the the thought that if this thing were to scale and replicate, that it would be as separate communities. And then maybe there's kind of a centralized mm. hub where we can all kind of get together and kumbaya every once in a while together, but that by and large, these communities would have kind of their own sensibilities and feel and whatnot. Mm. And it seemed to happen at such an important time as well. If, I, if, I, if I've got the timing right, wasn't it like a few months before COVID? It was like six months before COVID. Think- yeah. It, it, yeah the, the timing yeah. was crazy good for us. And I, I, I think it was good for a lot of, you know, for a lot of the folks in there because it, it has been kind of mm. the, the single bastion for many people to just talk about what's going on. You know, oftentimes these folks can't mm. talk with family, coworkers. They certainly have a hard time navigating anything online, like even asking questions, you know? So yeah, the timing was kind of remarkable and that's been a really weird, um, it's been a weird thing for me. Like COVID has been great for me. We we had two businesses that we invested in early on that ended up getting acquired due to the growth that they had during mm-hmm. COVID. Like financially, COVID's been amazing for me, but it's been this incredibly gut-wrenching experience to have to to see happen because we see how negatively this is affecting so many people in in the world, you know, and the the folks in our mm. community. So it's been this really weird thing for me. Like we lived in Texas for the first part. Now we live in Montana 
and these places have been relatively open and you know our, our day-to-day life have have been minimally impacted really in that regard um uh, because I work from home and do what I do like that, that uh, COVID has only accentuated, you know, the the things that I do there. It's only improved it. So you would think that I would be like the biggest like <laughs> go COVID advocate. You know, you could think like this has been great yeah. for us in a lot of ways. But um, we know more people who have committed suicide through the last two years than we do who who died from the, the virus itself. And that may be reflective of just mm-hmm. kind of the, the age and the demographic that, that we exist in. But, you know, we've, we've, um, we've seen some really terrible things happen as, as a consequence to the, the kind of social pressure cooker that has occurred around all this. So, um, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. that's been tough, but it, it's been, uh, uh, when I'm feeling down, like if we have one of these, these group chats and I get to jump on the healthy rebellion chat, like I always feel better afterwards. Like it, it, it's really a, yeah. a pick me up and a, a awesome group of people. Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely um, appreciate that. And like you, you seem to do like, I think about the things that you've done, Rob, and well, one, you seem to be an early adopter of lots of things, obviously like CrossFit being the first affiliate and fourth affiliate mm-hmm. gym. Mm-hmm. Um, wrote one of the first sort of mainstream paleo sort of books. And actually on that, you had um, Hamilton Staple on your show. Yeah. And this was, I can't recall if it was this year or the year before, things seemed to blend. And I really enjoyed that conversation about, you know, the state of ancestral health and where it is at now and, and sort of where it's going. If you think about where sort of paleo is now which is almost like a dirty word like you can't say right. paleo without people going oh what the hell whereas five years ago you could actually you know that was still part of the normal like a conversation that you could have with someone by using the term right where do you feel this is going or like have you had any thoughts about it like in terms of the movement or the food side of things or yeah you know it's uh, hamilton is just a great guy like he he's a historian by training and uh uh he really early on started asking some kind of thorny questions around you know all of this he found some early parallels between the um the physical culture movement of the early 1900s and the ancestral health movement and there was some cool stuff there but then he started doing some analysis about like who was doing quote paleo and and uh the likelihood of it it going mainstream you know getting more than 15 percent of the population involved and all that type of stuff um i i guess some interesting things is that some some pieces of the ancestral health model like circadian biology and and gut health Mm. writ large really the ancestral health movement put those things on the map like they took them from being completely you know, bogus, uh, quackery to being some of the hottest areas of, you know, kind of physiology, immunology research, uh, uh, you know, that that's occurring at this point. So some of the offshoots have, have really, you know, kind of, kind of, um, taken root. It's interesting. So like, uh, Brett Weinstein and, and Heather Hying, you know, they're evolutionary biologists and they talk constantly about, dynamic complex systems and the need for viewing things from an evolutionary biology lens. And, and they're, they're fairly critical of like the paleo diet concept. I I still would like to chat with them and see if they've read any of the early work on this because like Cordain never said there was a paleo diet. What he ended up doing is going Mm. through the ethnographic Atlas 
which considered it, it, it was the best repository of information we have on the, the contemporarily studied hunter gatherers, about 250 different, different groups and our best understanding of the amounts and types of foods that they ate. And Lauren did a pretty nice job of kind of, uh, stratifying all of that, you know, the amount of protein, carbs, fat, and the, you, you know, uh, did some, uh, uh, correlations between latitude and, and whatnot, but it, it was more of a, a distribution of, you know, here are some, mm -hmm. some error bars that, that this general concept exists in. And yes, some of them consume some grains. Yes. Some of them consume some dairy, but by and large, these are not like staples of the diet. And interestingly, you know, they, they seem to uh, have remarkably good health. Like uh, Stefan Lindeberg, his work with the Katavan population was just amazing. You know, he went from a, a population-based study of comparing the leptin levels of Katavans to uh, Scandinavian, you know, westernized individuals. And then he generated a, a hypothesis that the leptin resistance was driven by lectins from Neolithic foods. Mm. And then he... He did an animal model and then a human model, and and I don't know that his his uh, proposition was one hundred percent accurate. Like you could describe that same process. There's another wonderful pa paper, uh, dense acellular carbohydrates uh, being this mm. this problematic feature of you know Western diets. You could explain much of what we see with just the processing of carbohydrates and not necessarily the lectins per se, in, you know, instigating a, a leptin and insulin resistance. But man, it was a beautiful thing where it went from an observational epidemiological study that uh, had three layers of refinement kind of augering in and finding, you know, strong correlation. Then we had an animal intervention that, that, that was done in, in uh, pigs, which I think is a wonderful model for studying human physiology because their their uh, digestive, their opportunistic omnivore, their digestive physiology is very similar to ours, their pancreatic function, very, very similar. So it was actually a, a brilliant move there. And, it, you know, that was a nice move. Then there was a clinical intervention in humans that showed, you know, this benefit of a paleo type diet. And so it was really an elegant, um, you know, process. Now we could probably find something mm -hmm. similar that would work for a traditional Greek diet and a whole host of things relative to the, you know, the modern in industrialized diet. But I, I think that it, uh, the paleo diet concept gets a really bad rap because folks just haven't read the primary research on it, you know? And I, I, I think that mm -hmm. maybe even Brett and Heather might fall in that, that camp. And I, I base that off of the things that they've said that, you know, there's not one paleo diet. And it's like, none of the researchers in this scene ever said that. And they were quite emphatic to the opposite of that, but they, they provided kind of yeah. an aggregate. And then like, maybe if you operate within these bounds, here's some qualitative features of the food. And then as to the quantitative features, here are some boundaries to play with, with regards to protein, carbs, fat, then, you know, some good things should probably happen. And I, I think that that's been accurate. Uh, I, I do think that Evolution via natural selection is a thing and uh, medicine mm -hmm. is applied biology. And so mm -hmm. someday we will have Darwinian evolutionary biology as a cornerstone of what we do. You know, like it, it may happen within this personalized medicine, you know, thing that that is occurring when you you sit down with your your doctor to think about 
you know, your health strategies or whatnot like that, that individual is going to be thinking first principle wise about uh, Darwinian evolutionary biology and, you know, whatever your, your health situation is or what your goals are are going to be, you know, oriented through that lens. So it's not just going to go away, you know, it will end up having mm -hmm. some, you know, I think greater, uh, influence there, but it, it's kind of funny where we, uh, it, it would be like trying to, to do, um, like GPS satellites would not work if we didn't have, uh, Einstein's understanding of relativity, like because of the difference mm. where a satellite is relative to, uh, things on the earth, time actually runs a little bit differently, like a little, little faster, one location, a little slower other, and you need to do adjustments for that. Otherwise, like our, our geosynchronized, you know, clocks around the world wouldn't work. And so the, the evolutionary evolution via natural selection is as important as that. And part of the reason why our healthcare systems are such an absolute disaster and our, our food systems are because we have just, for whatever reason, refused to make that kind of a, a front and center, you know, element to the way that we, we look at the world. Mm. And even though now like so the, the concepts sort of surrounding the paleo diet, whatever you, you know, you would call it, like, it feels like there's more emerging research. Like, I mean, you're amazing at, at bringing like this study and this study and that like these just collections of studies seem to be coming out of the literature. And, and it's, it feels to me like it's very well understood now in terms of, uh, for example, full fat dairy, like mm -hmm. actually is protective, appears to be protective on a population level, yet the uh, dietary guidelines and the Ministry of Health guidelines will always state sort of low fat dairy for anyone sort of under two, like it feels like the where the the change needs to come for anyone, for the population that always look to things like the Ministry of Health um, in New Zealand here mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to get those recommendations. But it's just like that research is completely ignored. Yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, in the United States, I know it, it wasn't this last round of dietary guidelines updates. It, it was the one before, which is, so weird because I think they do that every five years and it feels like I, within my memory now, they've done two of these updates. I'm like, oh my God, I'm getting old really fast. But the, like <laughs> saturated fat became a, not a nutrient of concern, you know, and, and the same deal mm. with dietary cholesterol. And this raised a, a good bit of, of hubbub, but uh, this is pretty consistent with what the, the literature tells us, you know, as, as far as where we should be, you know, focusing efforts and whatnot. But so the dietary guidelines kind of got updated, but then the inertia within dietetics and center recommendations, like yeah. there are still folks, even though Ansel Keys, you know, said, oh, dietary cholesterol doesn't, doesn't really yeah. affect serum levels, except in a very few People, you know, the, uh, people still look at, at things like eating eggs as, as being problematic for cholesterol due to the cholesterol in the egg. Um, there definitely are some mm. people that with both dairy and saturated fat seem to see a disproportionate increase in cholesterol and, and lipoproteins with, with consumption or overconsumption. So I think that there are some, in, you know, some, some individual level or some, some niche population level things that we need to do a little bit of consideration around that. but. Yeah, it's funny, you know, and, and uh, this has been my kind of libertarian market, you know, solution to all this stuff. It, it, one is 
just if we generally have access to all the information available and we can talk about things, we I think we're in a really good position to to make great decisions. And I'm on, mm-hmm. I guess, one side of a camp with this. The other side of the camp is that no, people are too dumb and too gullible and they're going to make bad decisions. And so we need some gatekeeper intermediating in this both online and in real life to make sure that these idiots don't hurt themselves. And I, I just don't buy mm. that. Like absolutely people will, will make decisions that, that are not good for them. But I think by and large, when, when the best information is available, people, people will move it. This is a, a decentralized emergent process, like an economy, like, a like an ecology, you know, and the, the best practices will ultimately kind of win out in that circumstance. And so I have, I have more faith in, you know, like free access to information and people being able to hash out ideas because you, you can lay it out there. It's like, Hey, um, like there are people in the ancestral health, particularly the ketogenic diet space, that are like, so long as you keep insulin levels low, you can't gain body fat. Mm. Like that's a, that's a claim. Okay. Mm. These folks wear continuous glucose monitors, their blood glucose never, ever, ever spikes up. And because they're eating a stick of butter in a coffee three times a day, and they're consuming like 4,500 calories, they are gaining weight. And so you can out this stuff, you know, it's, uh, is it in a random, you know, is it in a clinical trial setting? No, but you know, it, uh, we don't need a clinical trial. Like if I drop a hammer on my foot, it's going to hurt 100 times out of 100. You know, it, 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 there are yeah. some things the, the effect is so powerful, you know, that you don't need a million samples to ferret out a, a really subtle uh, experience there. And I think that there's something similar to that, uh, you know, in this kind of emergent um, uh, decentralization. At a minimum, I would love it if different countries had three or four different ministries of health that were all competing against each other. And so you've got mm. part of the healthcare system, you know, like ho- however the the insurance or, you know, the healthcare delivery stuff is, is parceled out so that it, at least there's not a monopoly on this. Like one of the big criticisms of capitalism writ large is that you have these monopolies that n- need to be broken up and whatnot. And I, I'm kind of like, well, at the governmental level, why don't we break that up? Why don't we get some some different entities that compete against each other for funding and resources? And then I really, I think that you align the incentives in a way that we will figure out, okay, yeah, low-carb diets are actually super effective for type 2 diabetes. And, and uh, mm. you know, um, it may be challenging to get people to adhere to that. And that's another layer of this story. Like, how do we get compliance and we can start setting up incentives to make that, you know, more palatable for folks. But, um, you know, when we have a monopoly and, and kind of a, a feudalistic, uh, uh, ownership of information, I think that that's super dangerous. Like when we look back at at the pre-enlightenment period, when most people lived under feudal lords, it sucked, you know, uh, uh, Mm. life was not good. And we're somewhat there now with regards to information, like information is to our life, what, what land and water and, you know, food and whatnot were for the, you know, the agrarian society living under feudalistic lords. And so, um, I, I, I really, I think that that's part of the reason why Google and some of these other tech platforms have gone, 
so heavy handed in trying to suppress information around different approaches, whether it's COVID or low carb diets or whatever, like they're very, very prickly towards, uh, you know, paleo, keto, low carb diets. Uh, I, I think in part mm. because of the perception about how they, they play within the, the narrative of climate change, you know, which is that they're just uniformly mm -hmm. bad, which I, I'm, you know, I think I've got, where is it? Right there, sacred cow, you know, like I, I, yeah. I have a different yeah. perspective on that. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm crazy. But, you know, that's my attempt at, at creating some dialogue around that topic. So, like, if I am wrong, OK, let's let's have somebody dig into that and let's get, you know, their perspective on it so that we can hash that out. But, uh, you know, it's interesting the areas in which uh, the information monopolies, the old guard. Um, media entities or, and whatnot, like it's kind of this iron wall, you know, uh, yeah. high carb, low fat, animal products are bad, animal products are bad for humans or bad for the environment. And I mean, it's just very uniform discussion. There's no upside to any of it. Decentralization is bad. We need to centralize, uh, you know, power so that the, the, the right people who understand the world can make the right decisions. And, uh, I, I just see a ton of potential problem with that. Yeah, it's interesting. I was just reading your book yesterday as I was sort of thinking about things that I'd love to chat to you about. And particularly when it comes to animal, uh, you know, animal agriculture and what we understand of the sort of environmental and the ethical and the health implications. And you guys are up against big players in that. And, it, and I'm not thinking about uh, people who sort of share that same space, but you're up against movie stars, you know, and producers with millions of dollars who are able to produce these really compelling uh, movies. Super and slick. That's enough yeah. for people. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and it's just wrong. And that whole idea, and I think about it from a clinical perspective and what I see out there in terms of what, we're, what we understand about health and the idea that plant-based is a healthy approach for people is such a disconnect to actually what we need for health. And I think that's the problem in terms of sort of the individual and the information that they're getting sort of, you know, social media and, and, um, and all the rest of it. It's a, it's, it's a tough one. It's tough to be a health professional recommending that people eat meat. Yeah. You're a crazy person, you know, and, and I, mm. You know, as it is right now, and again, I, I, I don't want to steer it too much into COVID, but right now with, with COVID itself, for health concerns, we are in a situation where people feel justified in, in censoring folks, shutting them down, limiting access to shopping or, you, you know, food or, or a whole host of things. And it, I, I just don't see it being that large of a, a leap that, okay, maybe we kind of navigate through this. And it's like, well, within this whole COVID narrative, um, climate change and kind of social justice topics have been inextricably woven together. Like you find people will mm. say uh, uh, climate change caused the virus because we're encroaching on habitat, which doesn't appear to be the case, but, but you know, whatever, but, but this is the narrative and, uh, you know, evil capitalistic, you know, societies are the ones that are, are accelerating all this stuff. And it, it's kind of, it, it's a very, it's a wonderfully airtight case. It, I think it's wrong, mm. but like from an elevator pitch perspective, it, it, it's, it's wonderful, you know, and then 
if you were to push back against that, if you say, well, actually, uh, and properly applied animal husbandry could be a huge boon for both carbon sequestration and at a minimum mitigating desertification. If we allow this process to go a little bit further, then it's like, well, you're an enemy of the state because you're promoting a diet that is damaging the planet. And the claim is that it's going to yeah. end like human civilization. And, and so mm. we were justified in shutting down all the stuff around COVID because every life matters and we need to save everybody and everything. And there's truth to that, but I think it, it, it gets twisted in, in kind of remarkable ways. And now we can't let people talk about animal husbandry being a potentially beneficial feature of the food system and the environment because we all know that that's false. And so these people need to be silenced and deplatformed and, you know, mm. on and on. And, um, you know, you mentioned that I've been early to a lot of things. Like it, it's kind of, I, I don't want to toot my horn too much, but there's so many things that my wife and I did, but we did it so early that it, it, it literally, it was like, there wasn't even a box for people to figure this stuff out. Like we had a, a grass fed, all organic frozen meals delivered company in 2007. And it, it just like, mm -hmm. it was so early that pe people just, it, it did okay, but it was just way, 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 way too early. And we have like lots and lots of stuff like that. And I, I've been right about enough stuff early enough that I really trust my own perspective on this. And I think that we're just at this like razor's edge now with regards to where this stuff could go with regards to health and the ability to just have free open discourse and, and let the best hypothesis carry the day, you know, really, really let the mm -hmm. data carry the day, not, and, and not kowtowing to consensus or, or, um, you know, expertise. And that, that sounds nuts, but if, if I'm going to go get a surgery, let's say I'm going to get LASIK eye surgery. So I'm going to find somebody who's graduated from medical school and then they go through the, you know, the, uh, ophthalmology program and whatnot. And then what I'm going to do is read a ton of reviews from people who have interacted with this person, you know? So at the end of the day, I'm kind of relying on the, the knowledge of both individuals, but on, you know, group analysis to find like the best eye surgeon that I'm, uh, I'm going to go to. And I think that they're, again, kind of a decentralized emergent processes can help us to find the best solutions for climate change issues, social issues, uh, health issues. Um, but the, the ironic flip side to this, what I'm recommending is something very local, very decentralized, very much honoring the local culture of wherever it is that things are happening, whether it's health or food production or whatever. The flip side of this, and you, you kind of laid this out, is that it is a homogenized, one-size-fits-all, kind of like one group in maybe Brussels or something, you know, World Health Organization that mm -hmm. is dictating all of this to everybody in like this monochromatic fashion. And so we're supposed to assume that the the animal husbandry or the the food or health or uh, social political considerations in Northern Europe are going to be the same as Central America or in Africa. And uh, Forbes had a really fascinating piece that, that basically made the case that um, these synthetic meat companies like Impossible Burger and whatnot are, are like the mm -hmm. vegans are the best friends that big ag and, and big pharma have ever had because they're pushing this mm -hmm. narrative around super 
processed food that has nothing to do with sustainability, nothing really to do with health, but it's been greenwashed in such a way that it seems great, but it's actually consolidating all of the power, all of the the you know kind of industry into the hands of a, a very few people versus again this kind of decentralized process. Do you think that people understand that about like fake meat? Not at all. Not at all. Um, one of the and this is kind of our our the uh, my wife is reading Carl Sagan's book the the Demon Haunted World which he wrote in the early nineties and it, it basically talks about the shocking lack of science literacy in society at large but also specifically within our our political structure and I don't know about New Zealand but um, in the United States if you can find it, m- Virtually everybody has a law degree who ends up in mm. in politics. Uh, occasionally, you'll find a physician that that ends up in politics, and they're usually like our scientist in there. Very, very rarely you'll find somebody who has an engineering degree or something like that. And that person, you're like, oh my goodness, how did how did they get here? You know, but <laughs> they folks are so divorced from the way that the world really works, you know, just fundamental principles of the way that the world works. So these lab grown meat ideas, people are like, yeah, that's great. Just, just grow that in a lab. And it's like, well, what does this stuff grow on? And they're like, well, it, it just grows. And it's like, well, no, it doesn't just grow. You have to raise a bunch of row crops and then process it and turn it into maltodextrin and then protein concentrates. And then Feed that into a vat, and that vat needs to be temperature mm-hmm. controlled so it doesn't get too hot, doesn't get too cold. You need to introduce antibiotics to it because otherwise it's basically a giant petri dish. And once you walk people through this thing, even that, they're kind of like, well, I mean, you could produce a lot of food like that, right? And then you walk them out into like a cornfield or something, or just a a giant, you know, field where you're you're raising cattle. And it's like, no, this is where you grow food at scale, you know. It, uh, So telling that story, um, I I think we definitely did it in the book, but in the film, I'm not sure if we covered Grass World, but that was kind of our attempt at, because we were at a conference, Diana Rogers and I were at a conference and we were, we were early in the process of trying to write this book. And I'm like, my God, like people don't understand ecology at all, like just the fundamentals Mm. of, you know, there was a, uh, a vegan philosopher, professor who made the case that all predatory animals should be hunted to extinction because they're, they're a bummer on the lives of non-predatory animals. And, you know, basically mm. that, that they're meanies, they're big meanies. And if we remove all these big meanies, then it'll be great. And the guy rightfully got eaten alive in that folks were like, yeah, and then the population of these animals will explode. And then where are you going to be? And then he said, well, we could introduce, you know, like birth control on them. And it, so we're, this guy is suggesting that we're going to start trying to centrally manage the life cycle of global population of, of like herbivores versus, you know, mm. relying on uh, 4.5 billion years of evolution on this earth and, you know, plants, animals, herbivores, carnivores, or, uh, omnivores. It's crazy, you know, and this guy has got to be super smart. You know, he's well-educated. He's kind of the creme de la creme of academia. And this guy didn't even have an inkling of what the implications for were for what he was suggesting, you know, in, mm. and, and I don't think anybody would ever take this seriously, but he was really like sincere in 
this will reduce suffering on a, a global level because these these poor animals that are being eaten by lions and tigers and bears won't won't be eaten by them. But you know they will. Mm. There was no thought about the fact that they will outstrip the carrying capacity of their environment and then have a a completely catastrophic population crash, possibly to the tune of like you know mass extinction. And yeah, this yeah, is the yeah. stuff that we you know we face is is. Uh, uh, not only is I, I think kind of the story that you and I try to portray around food and the environment and whatnot very controversial and very much kind of heterodox to what the the mainstream story is, but it's uh, it's not an elevator pitch, you know, fifteen second, you know, uh, uh, Walt Disneyified, you know, view of the world. Mm. There, there's complexities to it that. Um, I think people are interested in, uh, you know, I, 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 in years past, I would have said that people lack the attention span to do that. But with all the long format material that's available now, I, I, I think that that that's not the case, but it still is challenging to get that, that detail and nuance out there. Rob, who would you recommend, you know, if I think about the, the people in the space and it feels like it's changed over time, like the people who are visible and, and talking about this stuff um who would you recommend that people who this is actually like new material for them and they're not even they wouldn't know who to sort of start following in it aside from yourself of course who else is out there that you feel is a really good trusted source of information in health and the state of things right now yeah i mean diana rogers a you know a dear friend of mine and uh she's really uniquely positioned she's a dietitian by training um but she co-authored sacred cow with me and really she she spearheaded that thing like she she drugged me kicking and screaming through that thing i at the end of the day i didn't ultimately want to do it but she knew that this was something that had to be done but diana is really kind of the johnny on the spot with all this stuff so she's really tied into how beneficial an animal inclusive diet is to women and children in particular and and she's just like mm. unremitting in, you know, um, you're going to have a hell of a time, you know, raising a healthy baby and a healthy mom on on like a, a vegan diet, you know, and, and she has the data and she has the experience to really back that stuff up. And then when it, if you if you navigate that chunk of the story and then you have some questions and concerns around like the environmental and ethical considerations of that, you know, meat inclusive food system. She, this is her life. Like she lives it. She uh, yeah. uh, lived on a small regenerative farm for 15 years and, and uh, is friends with like everybody in this space, you know, and, and her, her mm. circle of influence grows. So like if, if you, we met some folks that live uh, in in Mexico, and we linked them up with the the guy that we featured in the film, who's doing regenerative ag out in the Chihuahuan Desert, and has restored a million acres of of desert and turned re you know got it turned back into grassland. You know, so she Diana Rogers is definitely somebody I would I would check out for um, just really practical how to do it nutrition information to just just kind of you know healthy weight good body composition, you know, good performance. Like she's mm -hmm. really streamlined and, and, uh, on point with that. And then she really is the, the, the queen bee as to, you know, the information around regenerative ag and all that type of stuff. Awesome. No, that's awesome, Rob. And, um, finally, cause we're almost out of time, but I really just 
wanted to know, how's Element going? I mean, it's amazing. It's like the most amazing product I think I've come across. It's going really well. It's crazy. I would have never, five years ago, I would have never thought that I was going to be selling salt to people. Like it it was... uh, Uh, it, it, it's kind of funny. This is where, you know, in theory, I'm an expert on, on this stuff, but I had had long running energy, you know, problems. It, it generally felt good other than when I do like Brazilian jiu-jitsu or really hard workout. And those things just aren't super amenable to a low carb intake, particularly when you are under fueled with electrolytes, specifically sodium. And I just didn't know that. I, 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 Never really got on my radar, but I started hanging out with uh, Tyler Cartwright and Luis Villasenor, the founders of Keto Gains. And uh, after just ignoring their good advice for the better part of a year, they they looked at what I was doing and they're like, you need more sodium. I'm like, oh, I salt my food. I'm good. And they're like, they like rolled their eyes and are like, mm. okay, you'll, you will be back. You know, we've, we've had this conversation before. And when I fixed the problems that I was having with the adequate electrolytes, it was just amazing. And we knew that this was a problem that was facing most of the folks in the communities that we served. And so we spun up this thing called, uh, it was a free downloadable guide to help you make your own, you know, electrolyte beverage. And we called it KetoAid. And it was, uh, you know, this much table salt and this much potassium chloride, some magnesium citrate, lemon juice, stevia, water, shake it up, go. And uh, we released that. And it was like six months later, we had a half million downloads of it. It it was just going like crazy. And people started tagging Mm. us on social media and they're like, hey, this stuff is awesome. But when I travel, TSA doesn't like the three bags of white powder I travel with. And so, you know, is there, you know, would you guys ever consider doing like a, a convenience thing, you know, like a stick pack or something? And so we had no thought about spinning this thing up the way that we did, but we, we got really lucky. We identified a, a legitimate need within the health space, which is uh, really looking at electrolytes. It, the funny thing with this too, I went in and did a, a big literature review of electrolyte physiology and renal physiology and hypertension and all this stuff. And it had been 20 years since I had looked at anything like this, like angiotensin, renin, I, I you know, I remembered the words. I didn't remember any of the specifics at all, but I, I, uh, I went and looked at it with a completely fresh set of eyes. And I was like, these recommendations are ridiculous. Like, why would you recommend less than two grams of sodium per day for, for most people? Mm. And, uh, you know, it just, it just seems crazy. And, and, uh, and so that was a little over three years ago that we launched Element and it's just been going crazy. Like it, it's, uh, uh, we sell it pretty much all over the world at this point and it, it, it's growing like crazy and it has a great community feel to it. So thanks for, thanks for asking about that. Like it's been really cool, but I, I never in a million years would have thought that I'd be selling salt to people. Like it just seemed crazy, but that, that's where we are. Yeah, no, it's it's amazing, and it's it's interesting. I wonder whether you ever look back and sort of look at the evolution of where you started and where you're at now, and and whether you would have imagined that that's where you'd be. So to sort of finish off by going, yeah, actually, I would have had no idea. None, um, none at all. Answers that yeah. question. None. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Rob, thanks so much for your time this morning. And I look, I really doubt that anyone would need to um, be reminded of where to find you. But where can we find you? robwolf.com and then i do a lot of writing over at drinkelement.com also so uh those are kind of the two main places i do have social media 
profiles. I don't do much on them. Like I write something and then my assistant throws it up there for me because I just can't can't hang with with the social media scene at this point. But though that's kind of where to where to track me down. Uh, I do a weekly podcast with my wife called the Healthy Rebellion Radio, and so that's maybe something else if if folks want to check that out. That's awesome. And Rob, thank you so much for everything you do in this space. I I don't know where you find the enthusiasm day after day after day after all of these years to continue to say the same things pretty much all of the time but you but you also manage to bring such fresh information as well and it's you're amazing so thank you thank you i am just too dumb to quit that's all there is <laughs> <laughs> team hopefully you enjoyed that and it was such a treat to chat to Rob who is someone which I have been a massive fan on for years and years Uh, and if you don't already absolutely check out the Healthy Rebellion Radio for some really good sensible nutrition health and current climate conversations and not only can you check out all of Rob's information in the show notes, you can also find more of him over on robwolf.com. Next week on the podcast, I'm stoked to bring back a guest who's already been on, Lola Berry, to chat to her all about her book, Fearlessly Failing. Uh, It was so good to catch up with Lola. Until then, though, you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition over on Twitter and Instagram at Mickey Willardin, or as I previously said, over on MickeyWillardin.com where not only can you sign up for one of those aforementioned food plans, uh, you can also book a one-on-one consultation with me. All right, team, you have a great week and look forward to catching up next week. <laughs>